Scripture reading before Anthony's lesson this morning will come from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Deuteronomy 3, 18 through 22. I commanded you at that time, the Lord your God has given you this land to take possessions of it. But all your able-bodied men, armed for battle, must cross over ahead of your brother Israelites. However, your wives, your children, and your livestock, I know you have much livestock, may stay in the towns I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they, have, they too have taken over the land that your Lord God is giving them across the Jordan. After that, each of you may go back to the possession I have given you. Thanks, Timmy. Good morning, church. Nice to see you all today, bright and sunny, even if it's a little bit chilly. We're getting ready to get into a really exciting portion. If you are involved in the daily Bible reading that's happening here in the church, um, uh, you're getting ready to have Deuteronomy explain a lot of the purpose of the Exodus to you. So, Deuteronomy is about to really give you some insight and enrich you. It's a great time if you have not begun the scripture reading for the year and you're kind of you know, feeling like, oh, it's March, almost April, maybe I'll try 2016. This is the perfect time to sign up. You can do it online um, the, to get the texting if you want to get the, the reading to your cell phone. Or to grab one of the readings, uh, the schedule's back in the back, or you can get it on the internet on our website, because Deuteronomy will bring you right into the main story you need to get to keep moving with us. So this is the perfect time to jump on board. Deuteronomy really is a series of sermons preached by Moses in the plains of Moab just before Israel crosses in to the promised land. They have left Egypt, and they have wandered for 40 years, and they're standing at the plains of Moab, looking at the promised land, ready to go in. And Moses, before his death, preaches the sermons that we read in Deuteronomy. That's really what the book is. There's four major ones. Chapter, basically, chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 43, is the first section of sermons. Moses looking back on where they have been Chapter 4, verse 44, through all the way to chapter 28. You think Matt and I preach long. Think about that one sermon right there. That's a, that's a whole sermon about law and how they should keep the law. Chapter 29 into chapter 30 is the promise of blessing to those that obey and the promise of curse to those that disobey. The third sermon, more like a Wednesday night invitation. And then the fourth section is really the final words of Moses, the blessing of Joshua, and the really dramatic finish to this book where Moses is standing, looking at the promised land, and God says, you're not going to enter. And he lets him see it. And he dies on the mountain looking at the promised land. I've never met a preacher jealous of Moses' ministry before. Walk around with a bunch of complaining church people and then die. <laughs> what? <laughs> but Moses was a shepherd, so I think he's more of an elder. They're getting ready to enter the land. That's what we're going to talk about today. Entering this land goes all the way back to what God promised 
Abraham. The threefold promise, remember in chapter 12, God promised Abraham, I'll make you a nation, I'll give you a land, and through your seed, all of the people of the earth shall be blessed. Land, nation, seed. These three promises. Abraham was God's re-entry point back into the world to begin his plan of redemption and final restoration of Genesis 1 and 2, Garden of Eden. Life with God without sin. That's God's entry point through Abraham. And what God does through Abraham is not only accomplish his plan of redemption, he also demonstrates how redemption really happens. This is where the Old Testament becomes not just an encyclopedia of history, but a bottomless well of teaching for you and me. You see, it's actually an accomplishment for you and I to learn the story of the Old Testament, to understand the history, to see the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob work His plan through the nation of Israel. It's important for you to see and understand that history. But it's a greater objective for us to not only see the history, but the depth of the story. The depth of their story actually is our story. Their struggle and wrestle to relate to God and be God's people is our struggle and our wrestle to relate to God and be His people. Their journey actually is our journey mirrored perfectly because their God is our God. And what He did, what God did to make them His people, not only saves us today because of Jesus coming through them, but it teaches us what it takes to become God's people in the time in which we live. And so when you understand that truth, that all of the Old Testament, yes, first is history, but second is a mirror for you to look into, makes the Bible an endless adventure. But adventures always require a character in the story. Without characters, you get pretty bored. And what I found is you'll be bored with the Bible if you're not a character in the story. That if you're reading it, but you're not in the story, you will be tremendously bored with the Bible. But when you start to read the Bible, understanding that this picture is actually a story of how I relate to God, it opens up a whole new world to you. Have you wondered why the three promises, land, nation, seed? Well, God gives Abraham these three promises. He promises a nation because he wants to reestablish his sovereignty, his rule. A place where God is actually the one in charge, like it was in Eden, where God was sovereign. He promises a seed because God also wants to establish his family. Those that will be of his seed, those that will belong to him, not just foreigners or not just citizens of a kingdom, but children of the king. He's establishing a seed through Abraham. But finally, the land. Why the land? Well, God wants to not just establish his rule and his family, but he wants to establish his presence, his protection, and our peace. That's what the land was for. God was going to give them this land so that they could have a place to dwell with God, to be in God's presence, to dwell and to live with God, and to have the protection of God. And when you would have that, when you have the presence and the protection of God, You have the peace of man's heart. That's what you get. And so this morning, you're going to have to do a little work with me because a lot of our our study this morning is going to be a little bit of analogy or parable. So you're going to have to think, be reflective, and think into your own life and your own self, okay? So this land of God's presence and protection is a land that is key to God's people. 
It's the land that Abraham and Lot looked at and divided. It was a land that once famine came, 70 people of Jacob's family would go down to Egypt and leave this land. And some 400 plus years later, they would return to this land, but they found somebody who said, finders keepers, losers weepers. New people have found this land. And they're not just, you know, average people, not just wimpy people, but these are giants, huge people. They've taken possession of the land. They own this land now. These are the people that the Israelites are probably not going to want to mess with. So when they come back and say, hey, like 400 years ago, this was actually our seat, and I got up for a little bit, and you took my seat, so can you leave so we can have our land back? These people are not ready to leave. They're not going to leave easy. There's going to be some fighting. So the question is, how are they going to get this land back? They're standing there in the plains of Moab looking at this land saying, how are we going to get this land back where God can dwell with us and we can dwell with God and have his protection and our peace? War was the only way, and they knew that. And God tells them that. But with the promise of war comes also the promise of God's power and the history of God's deliverance. Shouldn't be a problem, right? God has proven himself over and over and over to these people that if there's a problem, if there's a trouble, if there's a difficulty, I am your God, your rescuer, your deliverer. I'll save you. I'll help you. I'll, I'll give this land to you. And God has promised that. But not everybody really believed that when they thought about entering the land, the place to dwell with God. Here's where the parable, the analogy starts. So join with me as you think about entering into the presence of God, the land where you can dwell with God. Did you know there were actually three different groups that entered the land? Three groups. There's a final group at the end that walks into the land and they conquer the land and they begin driving the people out, although they fail in that mission, but dwell in the land of the nation of Israel. But there are actually three groups that Moses tells us about in the beginning of Deuteronomy that enter into the land for a period of time. I want to tell you about those three groups and I think you'll see the analogy that is drawn with us. The first group is the spies. Do you remember the spies in Numbers chapter 13? You see, when they first came, after they left the mountain uh, where they received the commandments, Sinai, they came to the place where they were going to enter into the land. And they said, hey, let's send some spies into there to check out the land, to see what it looks like. And they were not checking the land out to see if they should enter. The spies were sent into the land to figure out which way to enter. So the spies go in and they dwell for about 40 days. And they come back with not so good news. Let's read a couple verses in Deuteronomy chapter 1 about these spies. Look in verse 20. Remember, Deuteronomy is Moses reminding them of what happened. Starting at, let's do verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb, that's where Mount Sinai was, and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country, the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. We came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not be afraid, or do not fear, or be dismayed. Then all of you came near and said to me, Let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us, and bring us word again of the way by which we may go up. I just lost my spot. 
which we go up, into the cities in which we shall come. Verse 23, The things seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and they went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskel and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Let's notice a couple things. First of all, what did these spies experience? They, they were sent into the land to see which way to go in. And notice for a second that they actually were in the land for a period of about 40 days. It's actually where you get the number of how many years they wandered for punishment later. They were in the land for 40 days. They were there dwelling with the people, eating the fruit, tasting of the good pleasure of that land, checking out the sights. They were living in the land for 40 days. They were checking it out. And in the numbers account, you see actually they, when they grabbed some of the grapes and the, and the figs, they had to get a stick and stick it across the shoulder of two guys and put it over just to carry the cluster of grapes back to the nation of Israel. These men dwelt in the land. They enjoyed the life that was there. They ate of the fruit, and they were excited about the life that was available to them. They were there, enjoying everything the land had to offer. But notice what they said in verse 26. Moses says, Yet you would not go up, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, listen what they said, Because the Lord hated us. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, disintegrate, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. This is kind of like a mythical giant story. You know, these are the guys that were the giants before the flood kind of thing. The Anakin is there. Notice what they say about God. God hates us. What they're saying is God is actually our enemy. They had no idea, did they? They think God is their enemy. They say God wants to destroy us. What God wants to do is punish us, actually eliminate us. So he's brought us into this land. He showed us the beautiful scenery and the fruit they've enjoyed of it, but they just can't imagine it actually being their land. So they're convinced in their mind that God is their enemy and God wants to destroy them. And what happens to them is their heart. Now, for the Hebrew, the heart is not just, you know, the, the, the love emotion or the thing that sells a movie or a pop song. That's not the heart. The heart is the seat of man, where he makes the decisions, his will, how he chooses things. And they said their heart disintegrated. It melted because of this belief. Why would they do that? I think we get an idea because we not just see what they experienced, but who they were. You see, they were spies in the land. They were there to spy. They were supposed to be for the Lord. The word spy, you know, has this connotation that you belong somewhere, but you don't belong where you are. You're checking things out. They were in the land as a spy. They were supposed to be on the Lord's side, spying out the land for the Lord and his people to come into the land. But I think if you go and look at what Stephen had to say about these people in Acts chapter 7, 
Stephen reflected accurately about who they really were. When he was telling his sermon, really recounting the history of the Israelite people and their journey, in chapter 7, verse 39, Stephen says that those people in their hearts were already back in Egypt. You see, they were supposed to be a spy for the Lord in the land, but I believe they were a spy because they were foreigners in that land. Where did they belong? Where were their hearts? Their hearts were still in Egypt. They were a foreigner, not because they were Israelites in the land ready to take it. They were a foreigner because they didn't really belong to God. You see, they tasted of the fruit. They enjoyed the scenery. They lived life in the land, but their heart never belonged to God. Do you see why they were spies? And do you see how dangerous this can be for us? You can be a spy in the land of God. Meaning you can taste of the fruit, you can enjoy the blessing, you can enjoy the scenery, you can dwell amongst the land and live amongst the people, but if your heart is still back in Egypt, you're nothing but a foreigner in the land of God, in the presence of God. Even though they experienced all of this, they were on a mission, but their heart was far away. These men were not for God because they had no faith that God was actually for them despite all that God had done. Listen to verse 30. The Lord your God who goes before you, this is after they're afraid to go up. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt. Now look in verse 32. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. They didn't believe. They had no faith that God was going to do anything for them despite all that God had done. And so what stands out to me is that these people entered the land of God secretly, trying to enter the land, but their hearts were not really with God. Keep that in your mind, okay? Let's look at the second group. Chapter 1, verse 41. So the punishment for these people, Moses says, hey, listen, because you had no faith in God, what God has said is that you're not going to enter the land. You'll actually wander one year for every day that you were in the land, and the people of disbelief, the unfaithful, those that do not trust God, must die. So you will wander. Now look what happens when they hear this. Verse 41 says, Then you answered me, We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go, we ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up and fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated by your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down. You think we invented that phrase? God invented that phrase, beat you down. And they beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah, and you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. There's a phrase that the author here uses that is very distinct. And, and, and you getting this is important because you're going to see this contrasted with another phrase. He calls these people men of war. And so when they are told you are not allowed to enter... <clears throat> They said, not good enough for us. And so they strapped on their own weapons. They thought it was easy. They went up into the hill country 
ready to fight. And he says that your enemies actually chased you out like bees and beat you down. And you ran and you wept. The second group that entered the land were men of war. Men who fastened on armor and battle to go war. See, what they experienced in verse 44 was a royal beatdown. And for their life, from the time that they left Egypt, here's what their life consisted of. Now, here, pay attention. This is the parable. Here's what their life consisted of from the time that they came out of their bondage, like you and I come out of our sin. War and lost wandering, never knowing where they belonged. Does that mark your life at all? constant battle, constant fighting, constant warring, and never really knowing where you are, just journeying around, never feeling settled. That's what these people experienced. That's what they lived in. They never actually even tasted the fruit of the land. They never enjoyed the scenery of the land. And what they said reveals a lot about who they were. They said, we ourselves will go. Then they fastened on their own weapons. They thought they were equipped to do this themselves. And Moses said, you thought it was easy. You see, what they did was they attributed all of their previous victories, not to God, but to themselves. They assumed they're mighty warriors. They could do this. All of their past victories in their life were just a result of their skill, their wit, their wisdom, their intelligence. Does that mark any of our lives? That the way that we've come so far is just a mark, an evidence of how brilliant and wise we are? That's what they were doing. And verse 43 shows you who they were. They would not listen. They were rebellious, disobedient. And the Bible says they presumptuously went in. Now that word presumption is kind of interesting. You know, we've got a lot of English um, uh, understanding that's attached to the word presumption. What it really means here is to be boiled up. And so like Jacob, when he made his stew... He presumption, that, that stew was presumptuously made. It means it boiled up, okay? That's the same word. And so what they did, what happened to them was, when they were told, no, you're not going to enter, they internally boiled up at the thought of being told, I can't have something. You're telling me no? You're not going to tell me no. I get what I want when I want it. They see that this idea of being told no. And so they took it upon themselves to do what they were going to do, to get what they wanted, because they were in charge. These men would not be told no to anything. They were so self-involved that they could only see things their way on their time. And that makes you a man of war, always fighting. When it has to be your way, on your time, the way that you think, the way that all things should come together, that makes us people of war, constantly. And so when God said, you are not going to enter into this land right now, they seethe from within because he said, you are not going to tell me no, God. I'm going to have what I want when I want it. They strapped on their weapons. They went in, thought it was easy, and said, I'm going to do what I want to do. And they battled. And for the rest of their journey, they're going to wander in the wilderness and they will die. What stands out to me is that these men didn't enter secretively. They entered presumptuously. And they didn't stay. Let's notice the third group. chapter 3, what Timmy was reading for us, verse 18. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess all your men of valor. Do you notice the distinction there? Group 2 was called men men of war. 
And he says, you are called men of valor. You're the ones who are going to enter in. Valor is kind of a strange word in Hebrew. In one sense, it means like to withdraw from, to take off. It's kind of interesting. The other sense is a person who is fully equipped, fully ready, a person who is prepared, completely distinct and different from the man of war. These guys are armed, they're ready, they're mentally prepared. Going into this battle is something they are ready to do. And here's where the writer becomes an artist with his words, because what he's doing is showing you the men of war, what he said about them is they fastened their own weapons on their own hip. The men of valor were equipped. They were ready. And it probably had little to do with the sword that was on their hip and much more to do with the mind and the heart that was within them. Israel now is finally ready to enter the land because the men of valor are there 40 years later, journeying in the wilderness. That 40-year march that Moses led them on all throughout that journey was to prepare God's people to finally enter the land the right way. And that's key. Entering the land, the place where God dwells, has to be done the right way. And so this wilderness journey was a journey of death. It was a death march for these people. Something had to die out of the nation of Israel for them to be able to enter in. And the first thing that had to die was their disbelief in God. You see in chapter 1, verse 34, if you go back and look there, it says, The Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. These disbelieving people would not enter. And so God said those that doubted him, those that didn't know who he was, had to die disbelief in the goodness and the graciousness and the ability of God has to die in us before we'll ever enter the land. When we still doubt God and His goodness towards us and His ability for us, when you doubt that, you will always be wandering around the land, the presence of God, secretively. You'll always be still hoping in... Why were they hoping in Egypt? Do you ever wonder that? Because Egypt was the world power. It was the biggest nation in the world. And so when you don't trust the goodness and the ability of God, you will always be wandering around in His land, eating the fruit, enjoying the fellowship and all those things, but you'll still be attaching yourself to something you think is more powerful and more able and better to you than God. You'll always be a spy. You'll always be a foreigner. That's what had to die in these people. Thinking wrongly about God has to die in us. The second thing that has to die is disobedience. In chapter 2, look at this, verse 14. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook of Zered was 38 years. Until the entire generation, listen carefully to this, that is the men of war had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So as soon as the men of war, all the men of war have perished and were dead from among the the people, the Lord said to me, today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. Do you see that? As soon as all of the men of war from the nation of Israel died, God said, now it's time to enter into the land. 
The second thing that has to die is the disobedience in us that comes from a full trust in self and a lack of trust in God. You see, that's where disobedience always comes from. If I am at my job and my boss says, hey, I would like you to do this thing, but I think I should do something different, or I think I'm smarter than my boss, that's what produces disobedience. Have you ever got to the bottom of that? Disobedience at its root is a form of self-trust. I know better. What makes children disobey? What makes spouses disobey? What makes people disobey? Is deep within them, they still have a belief that they know better than the person that is telling them what to do. And when the nation of Israel was told, you shall not go in, these people thought they knew better. And what had to die in them was this disobedience. Doubt of God's goodness and trust and trust in ourselves has to die on this journey. And God did that for them. Read Deuteronomy chapter 8 sometime and you'll see the exact reason why God made them wander for 40 years. He tells them, I did this to humble you and to teach you to trust me. 40 years, their clothes never wore out. Their shoes never wore out. God says, you can trust me. So why is this all this important? Let me give you this and we'll be done. The way you enter the land of God matters. Because the way that you come in determines how you dwell in the land. If you come in as a spy, doubting God's goodness, doubting his ability, but you're there eating the fruit, enjoying the scene. For us, it might be enjoying the spiritual experience of church and the fellowship of Christianity and the good morals. Maybe you're enjoying that, but your heart is still somewhere else. You'll never feel like you belong. You'll never trust that you should be here. And you'll always have this hint of anticipation that God probably doesn't like you and is probably ready to destroy you. It's exactly what the spies felt. Maybe you come in as a man of war, a person of war. Your life will constantly be marked by fighting. You'll never stop fighting. You'll never experience the rest, the Sabbath that God wants you to experience in the land. And you'll always see people, always see people as enemies. You see, if the Israelites would have conquered the land by their power, by their war, for the rest of their dwelling, they would have always had a sword in their hand ready to fight. And when you enter into God's land as a man of war, you'll always be fighting. But if you come in as a man of valor, able to rest, able to trust, able to obey because you know who God is and what God can do, and you'll enter into this land not by your power but by God's, you'll finally have what God wants for you. See, the question is not which one of these are you? Spy, man of war, man of valor. The question is not which one. The better question is where are you? Because the three groups are not three distinct groups, but three stages we take in our journey where we don't really know who God is. Is he trustworthy? Can we trust him? And then we learn, yes, okay, the land is something we should have. We want to be in that land, but we're not sure who God is, but we want the land, and so we're going to take it up on our own terms by our own power. But finally, after the 38 years of journeying with God, hopefully he's killing off in us a distrust in him and a complete trust in ourselves. So we learn by his goodness and his ability to trust him when we enter into that land. You know, one of the saddest verses in Deuteronomy is chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea to enter into the land. Do you know how long? Eleven days. They were eleven days away from the land when they left Mount Sinai. But it took them 38 more years. You know what it reminds me of? 
when Jesus said, unless you be converted, become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's funny, right? I see all these babies. I heard a few of them, like maybe Sadie back there giggling a little bit or something. I'm like, you're so close. Like, just hang right there, right? The kingdom is this close to you. But then we have to go out and journey, don't we? We have to learn that God is actually good and he's gracious and he's able to save us. Then we have to journey and go through a few battles, take some lumps, take some beat downs like the men of war did to learn that not by my strength and by my power. And maybe through that 38 years of wandering, we'll come back to the very same place that was 11 days away from us and say, it's through trust and obedience to somebody that is bigger and greater and more lovely than I am that I can enter into the land and have what God calls really Sabbath, rest. Boy, we'd love to see you enter the land, be in the presence of God. If we can help, you can come as we stand and sing.